30 for 30 podcasts are brought to you by OnStar. Vehicle theft. Most of us think it's something that happens to someone else. But if it ever does happen to you, OnStar can help. OnStar has stolen vehicle slowdown. OnStar advisors can work with law enforcement to locate and remotely slow down your vehicle so that authorities have the chance to apprehend the crook who took your car. OnStar can help get your vehicle back quicker and safer. If vehicle theft happens to you, turn to OnStar. Because at a moment like that, the last thing you want to be is alone. Get OnStar on your team today. OnStar, be safe out there. OnStar is available on Chevrolet, Buick, GMC, and Cadillac. Requires select paid plan, cell reception, GPS signal, and working electrical system. Doesn't prevent theft, damage, or loss. Details at OnStar.com. Hello and welcome to 30 for 30 Podcast. My name is Jody Avergan. Today, a very special bonus or crossover episode. I don't, I never really know what to refer to these things, but we've gathered two of my favorite journalists to talk about reporting on sports and power and lots more. And both of them have just wrapped up podcast seasons that get to a lot of those themes. So we'll, we'll discuss it all. Ramona Shelburne is here, ESPN NBA reporter, and of course, the host of our most recent series, The Sterling Affairs. Hello, Ramona. Congratulations again on this series. Thank you. Thank you. And Malcolm Gladwell is here, author of many, many books and most relevant for our purposes, host of Revisionist History, one of my favorite shows that also just wrapped up a recent season and one that touches on sports from time to time. So hello, Malcolm. Glad to be here. Um, And a new book coming out? Talking to Strangers. Ooh. How to Talk to Strangers. Oh, no, Talking to Talking Strangers. Talking to Strangers. In uh, it, uh, yes. Well, it, it does answer the question in part of how to talk to strangers. Gotcha. Okay. And so we are two strangers. We've never talked before, so you tell us when it gets awkward and <laughs> what tips you have for making it less so. <laughs> so actually, one thing I really admire about both of your work is that it feels like it helps me understand in your respective worlds power and how power really works, where it really lies, how individuals use that power within the power structure and then make decisions good and bad around that. So I thought we could start there. And Ramona, maybe you can kick it off kind of in your world of the NBA. How do you think about power? What have you learned about where it really lies? And kind of how do you then go about reporting on that? So powers changed so much in the NBA over the last five or 10 years that it's almost changed so much that we can't recognize the way it was before. Um, and I think the Donald Sterling tapes and the whole scandal associated with it were one of the big reckonings and tipping point moments, right, when it started to change. But I think those dynamics were in play for a long time. It almost feels a little more Hollywood to me now, where the biggest stars control everything, um, where the biggest players in the game and their personas, their brands, their agencies, the full force and might of their weight on social media and as just entities, okay? I say entities because I mean corporate and social and um and in the business world, everything is so much more than they than the players ever used to have before. Um, it used to be an owners like the owners controlled players. The owners controlled player movement. You worked for the owners. You worked for franchises. And now, just the 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 top superstars in the league really dictate what happens. So players are a lot more powerful now than they ever were. But do you think they're still not powerful enough? Yes. I don't think they're powerful nearly enough. I think the owner is basically the guy now, or actually there's two women, but they just keep the lights on. You know, ownership matters in like you see the Golden State Warriors where you have a great ownership group um, who treats the players well, gives, but really all they're doing is 
creating the right conditions for winning to happen um, and empowering players and their front office and organizations to, to make the winning happen, right? But I think that the players, specifically the superstar players, have like, they're just now grasping how much power they really have. Mm-hmm. And it started to me with LeBron James. Um, and I, I think we've seen players of the years wield a tremendous amount of power sort of behind the scenes, but he was, he's been so much more forward-facing. The question for me is, what are they going to do with that power? Do they use the power to affect social change, to change the conditions for the rest of the league, to set generations for the future up? Or is it just, you know, the top 15, 20 players going to make a lot of money and not much else? I mean, what's interesting to me is it's really unclear to me at a certain point, why do we have owners? So, you know, the function that they're providing is not altogether clear anymore. I understand why you have... If you're General Motors, I understand why you have a CEO and a board of directors and, you know, a person who's involved in engineering, who who runs engineering, right? It's a hierarchical organization. You have decisions, very important decisions that are complicated, that are made at the top, that, Mm -hmm. you know, the guy on the line does not know the kinds of things he needs to know in order to run General Motors. But the the value added being 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 brought by the owners is really super unclear and you could say well yeah. they bring money to the the occasion they don't need to bring money anymore you have a guaranteed stream of income coming in from the networks it's like totally anachronistic i don't understand at a certain point why don't the i've never understood this why don't the players just walk away and start their own league if i can just throw in one sort of moment from the donald sterling tapes that i think is just gets at this and you know yeah. all the gobsmacking things in those tapes nestled in there there's actually like a really honest conversation between v stiviano and donald sterling yep. around this exact question where she says to him you know you realize you have a team full of black players and he asks yes but who makes the game do you know that you have a whole team that's black that plays for you, you just do i don't I support them and give them food and clothes and cars and houses. Who gives it to them? Does someone else give it to them? Do I know that I have? Who makes the game? Do I make the game or do they make the game? So one day, Adam Silver and I were talking about ownership, and he says, "He says, you know, it's like you can tell when there's a good owner because it's like going to a good hotel. Like you're, you know, it's like a five star hotel. You can tell immediately. Like you walk in, the the front desk is is there to meet you. Your room's ready. You don't have to wait. Somebody carries your bags. They don't even have to ask. Like you can just tell you're in a nice hotel. But you can also tell when you're in a bad hotel." You can also tell when, you know, right away, like, you know, your room's not made up, it's not ready. I think that's the same with ownership. Like, you can tell pretty quickly after visiting a franchise whether it's being run correctly. But I don't know, to your point, like, how important, is that the owner who makes that choice? Or is it just they hired the right people and empowered them? Yeah. I mean, I can see it's clear that who your general manager matters and who your coach matters, that those things are huge. But the, and the owner, I suppose, makes the decision yeah. sometimes yeah. about which of those jobs to fill. But does that do those set of responsibilities legitimate having complete economic control of the franchise and reaping all of the economic benefit of the franchise? This is what I don't what I don't understand. Like I don't understand why. I mean, LeBron James has contributed more to the value of the contemporary NBA than any owner has, and. 
he he will walk away with a lot of money. But he won't walk away with a, with as much money as the owners have over the course of that of that period. That seems to be really weird. And I think players are angry about that. I think they've yeah. started to realize. Uh, and and we're when we say players, I really mean the top 15, 20 players in the league. Yeah. Because beyond there, it's like the the wins above replacement don't matter, right? I mean, they're just it's nominal. Um, but the real stars in this league are vastly underpaid for what they do, for the value they create for the league. Well, but you can imagine a scenario like in thousands of companies around this country, valued employees get stock options. You know, the company voluntarily gives up some portion of its yeah. value to its best employees. That's a great, I, that, that you know, let's go back to Jerry Buss and the Los Angeles Lakers, okay? Magic Johnson is a key part of the Sterling affairs, right? He's like, in some ways, a trigger for Donald Sterling. He's the he's the guy in the Instagram photo with Vistaviano that sets mm-hmm. him off. He's also the guy that in the Anderson Cooper interview, Donald really unravels just in talking about him. And I think it's because he's so intertwined with the Lakers and Jerry Buss, who Donald Sterling had this like lifelong inferiority complex of. In a moment where he could have tried to redeem himself, Donald Sterling instead doubled down on his strange vendetta against Magic Johnson. What has he done? Can you tell me? Big Magic Johnson, what has he done? Well, yes, he's a business person. He, uh, he's got AIDS. Did he do any business? I like, did he help anybody in South LA? Well, I think he has HIV. He doesn't actually have full-blown AIDS. But. Uh, well, what kind of a guy goes to every city, has sex with every girl, then he catches HIV? And uh, is that someone we want to respect and, and tell our kids about? I think he should be ashamed of himself. I think he should go into the background. Um, but Jerry Buss gave Magic Johnson a 25-year, $25 million contract at one point, And it was this revolutionary kind of contract. Nobody, that was like obscene money at the time. He also, when Magic retired, gave him a equity in the team. Maybe you give him ownership share. Maybe you give him equity. Maybe you give him part of the profits or, or some extra cut in so we don't have to deal with Supermax contracts or maybe, anymore. Or maybe you remove the salary cap. Altogether. Which is an, another absurd exactly. idea. Like, where in the world does ownership... This is like the kind of thing, if someone tried this in any other industry, they would be laughed out of town. Yeah. Like, this is crazy. Like, I don't understand how you get away with that. I mean, a lot of people have pointed out that the NBA is, is heading towards or potentially could head towards, you know, you look at European soccer, which is just much more free-for-all. People move around a ton. I mean, I remember there was a moment in this offseason where I kind of remarked, like... This is an insane offseason. The rumor mills are just absurd. There's huge moves every three it's hours. It's great for ratings. And someone Jody. was just don't like, fight the, "Don't fight it. It's great for ratings." It's great for ratings. Great but for someone ratings. was just like, "Welcome it, to just an average week in European soccer." You get. I mean, the way I would think about this is, the an NBA owner or an NFL owner, we're giving you two things that are of enormous value in uh, economically. One is that we are allowing you to control competition. Right. We have closed access to your market. And two, we have given you, for relatively long periods, a guaranteed income stream, which there, is, there are no other major industries in America that have those two things, guaranteed income stream and control over um, entry into your marketplace. After that, all bets should be off. I'm waiting. The healthiest, greatest day in American sports will be when an owner faces a significant economic loss. That's the real world. 
right? Like it happens in soccer all the time. People lose real yeah, money, great. Yeah. right? That's healthy when you lose real money. And owners claim that they're in economic peril all the time and they are absolutely So, so not, think about right? it like this. All of, anybody who becomes an owner, generally speaking, is fairly successful in business, right? right? To have enough money to buy a team, you have had to deal with the real world and real business for most of your life and been really good at it. So then you get to the NBA where it's just basically controlled profit and Donald Sterling ran the Clippers <laughs> kind of that on, that, on that game. <laughs> guaranteed income yeah. for his entire tenure. Why should he spend any money when he knows he can make more by spending the least amount possible and getting that guaranteed income stream from league revenue? Donald, with his training as a PI lawyer, most of the time you're getting your money in a settlement from the insurance company. And you never accept the first offer because it's not the real offer. And the best offer is at the courthouse steps. This negotiating tactic had made Donald hundreds of millions of dollars in his real estate business. But the courtroom steps approach doesn't work in the NBA because in the NBA, you're dealing with people, not buildings. Donald, what you don't realize is your buildings, they can't talk back to you. Human beings can talk back to you. So to that point, I mean, there is a moment in the podcast and Malcolm, I want to sort of see how this plays out in the work that you do. But there is a moment where what Donald didn't realize is that you can't treat people the way that you treat buildings, right? And that you can't just kind of have that that approach yeah. that got you successful in real estate. You can't bring that approach into the NBA. And he certainly he tried. And so I Although, guess a little uh, bit to quibble, get- Can I quibble yeah, with yeah, one please? aspect of that? He got away with it for a long time. 30 years. <laughs> like 30 years. So, certainly I mean, did. he was right. I mean, yeah. and then he made it like a band at the end. Right. So Jerry so. Buss digs in and figures out how to make basketball a business, how to run the Lakers to where he makes a great profit. And that's that's the family business. And they're still the second most profitable team in the league behind the Knicks. The Clippers, though, Donald Sterling never sells from anything. And he just basically remains a real estate guy who happens to have a team. And he treats the Clippers the same way he would treat real estate, which is, don't really spend that much. Put a new coat of paint on it. Make you know, put these signs up that say "ultra luxurious." Hike up the rent, um, and just sit back and let the profits roll in and claim depreciation on your taxes. Yeah. It's like a standard formula, but he never digs into how you can actually turn the Clippers or basketball into a business. So we knew, we all know he's a scumbag. But the interesting thing is, we didn't we didn't know precisely how and why he was a scumbag, and. Uh, the the revelation is in the details. So a lot of times you don't have to search for something hidden and unknown. What what is amazing to me is how much of what appears familiar is actually we only know a fraction of, and is and the details of which are are largely unfamiliar to us. Like most most things in life are deeply underreported. Mm-hmm. That is the lesson of journalism and it's it's funny because i keep waiting to discover this fact is not true and the older i get the more i realize no no no, it's more true than ever people's understanding of everything is so is so kind of extraordinarily deeply superficial we could do a 10-part fascinating series on tax policy and sports totally. franchises like no one this totally, is thing. it's so interesting it's so interesting it is and people don't let's sell that jody can we sell a 10-part <laughs> series on depreciation and sports franchises? i would happily do it with you. There are, if you approach this whole thing from the perspective of, a, of an accountant, you you're, you're understanding completely change. You understand yep. these guys have got it made in the shade. They have or got a, or a lawyer, right? I mean, so many of the oh, stories, yeah. the Sterling story, a lot of the stories. I mean, I'm I'm just amazed how often, just as an editor on this series and thinking about all the stories we do, we often have to like. I actually think I'm pretty good now at telling like procedurals because so often these come down to 
squabbles between lawyers. And I mean, one of the big challenges with the Sterling story was, you know, but how do we make them a character and a narrative that people want to sort of latch onto? I mean, and I think literally you know, have a huge scene about probate code. Yeah. Yeah, which is what it <laughs> like, comes down to. I mean, like a probate court. Like, I remember going down to the courthouses and we were all like live tweeting. I'm like, this is the greatest probate court <laughs> hearing probably ever. Like, has anything ever been more exciting in probate yeah. court? Because it really does come down to that. Did, did doing that series, Ramona, did it convince you or make you think that we would all be better off if all sports franchises were public companies? Ooh. Because that never happens. Sterling does not happen if it's a public no, company. No, never. Right. Yeah. Because there's this public accountability to shareholders. In a way, it was the NBA became like a public company at that moment because it was such a public story that there was a reckoning where the advertisers pulled their sponsorships. Game five, where all the advertisers and sponsors start pulling out. And I'll never forget being there at game five with everything covered up. It was the entire, all the signage, all the ads um, was covered up in black banners. And I was like, and that's when Donald Sterling's actions start to affect the bottom line of everybody else. When his franchise starts to hurt the brand value of the entire league, that's when they have the license to say, we're revoking your franchise license. Now, he owns the team. It is his private property. It's his property, okay? But his franchise license could be revoked. And that's what the Board of Governors would have voted on. And then that would have forced a sale of the team. But we never had to get there because little old Shelly Sterling with her Chanel bag <laughs> did the dirty work for him. We'll be right back with more of my conversation with Ramona Shelburne and Malcolm Gladwell right after the break. 30 for 30 podcast is brought to you by Delta Airlines. Delta flies to 300 cities around the world. That's 300 cities where everyone does the same things you do. That's 300 cities where the people in those 300 cities think they're the only ones who know about that one place. 300 cities where people miss someone in one of the other 299 cities. 300 cities where people sing in the car or in the shower or both poorly. Delta isn't flying to 300 cities merely to bring us together, but to show us we're not that far apart in the first place. Delta, keep climbing. 30 for 30 podcasts are brought to you by State Farm. Whether in the game of basketball or in life, having an MVP on your side makes all the difference. Your State Farm agent strives to be your MVP, ready to come through in the clutch when you need it the most. Whether it's buying a new home, coping with a car accident, or building the foundation for your future, you can feel confident in knowing you don't have to go it alone. With a State Farm agent on your team, you'll be well-prepared for whatever life brings your way. State Farm, here to help life go right. Okay, back to the conversation, and I started by asking Malcolm Gladwell about a recent episode of Revisionist History, which reminded me a lot about something we talked about in the Sterling series. So, here we go. Take a listen. In the early 2000s, uh, there were a bunch of lawsuits brought against Donald Sterling on the housing front. Um, and he was sued in L.A. and then he was sued by the Department of Justice, had to settle with the Department of Justice for housing discrimination. Like the, like the father now, of our president. What's that? Like the father of our president. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Uh, well, we're going to talk about the two Donalds in, in a second. Uh, but <laughs> in this moment, in the early 2000s, um, as Ramona points out, in the paper, in the L.A. Times around the same time, these ads start appearing. Um, lauding Donald Sterling's humanitarian efforts. And he was starting to receive awards from the NAACP for like humanitarian of the year. Um, and he's giving out awards. Um, it made me think a lot about uh, chutzpah 
or yeah. chutzpah. I don't, I don't know. You tell me. But you know, talk a little bit about your exploration of those, and I, I'm curious, you know, where Donald Sterling fits into that. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, I did an episode of Revisionist History this season on um, the two chutzpahs. And the idea it's, it's this. I love this. It's by a very, 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 <laughs> a very, very kind of slight observation. But Israelis and Americans have different definitions of chutzpah. In America, chutzpah means a kind of plucky audacity, yeah. um, and in Israel, it means doing something shameful, where you, where you, you just have no regard for anybody else. Not and, shameless, shameful. Oh, shameless and shameful. Right. Yes, but a step yeah. beyond was, shameless yeah. somehow, right? You are, it's just a kind of, so it's a criticism in Israel and it's a compliment in America. And they even pronounce it differently in America, it's chutzpah, and an Israeli would pronounce it as huspah. I'm, I'm so not. taking yeah. out ads, lauding your, human, your humanitarian it's work. It's, it's, yeah. That yeah. is the, the Israeli definition. Exactly. That is like, that is shamelessness writ large. Um, I mean, the man was a, I mean, the man was... What amazes me, I we I, I keep I've said this now three times, but Ramona, can you why thirty years? It, it wasn't like he was hiding who he was from the very beginning, right? He was always a low life. Was it just that the bar was so low? So here's what I think the best answer I can give, and this is me, this is my opinion, okay? But I think there's 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 two key factors. One. The Clippers were a sleeping giant in Los Angeles. I don't think the other owners minded that they sucked, that it was like a guaranteed couple of wins. I think the other side of it was the league would have loved to get rid of Donald Sterling, but he is one of the most litigious people you have ever met. He loves it. He has lawyers on retainer, and he wants to use him just because. Um, and the league actually tried to take him on legally a couple of times. He he goes and moves the Clippers to Los Angeles completely unauthorized, um, and then sues and the he league. didn't have permission to nope. move them from San Diego? Just went. So Al Davis did it, and... Just went, and then it was seven years in court, yeah. and then the seven league years finally court. basically yeah. caved. And, 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 okay, and Donald was the one who sued them. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> right. And I think the league knew, like, if you're gonna go after Donald Sterling, if you're gonna try to get him out, you better have the goods. You better be able to beat him in court. And but why does the getting man sued was a, by the Department of Justice for housing discrimination not count as the goods? So, I think they were really scared. Like, they all live in glass houses. Okay. So to get three quarters of the league to get him out, to vote him out, would have been a big deal. Then you vote him out, but now you're looking at a protracted court battle on what grounds? Mm -hmm. Like there's nothing really in the league that you could point to. And I think there was this like big moment in the probate court trial, hey, let's make it hot again, where uh, the, the CEO, Dick Parsons, he was a former CEO of Citibank, but he had been named to be the interim president of the Clippers. He talked about the death spiral of the franchise that Donald Sterling had wrought with this tape and, and how it was affecting everybody economically, that if they didn't get him out, um, the Clippers were in a death spiral. They, it would have taken something to that level to get him out over those 30 years. Uh, housing discrimination, terrible, um, but maybe a little subtle. Todd Boyd points that out. It's a little subtle. And they ended up settling. It wasn't like found guilty. So yeah. there's a difference in that. You would think, I mean, no, it's interesting that I, I'm, if you were to imagine rewriting the rules post Sterling, but I've already suggested that I think ultimately making franchises public companies is one way of doing it, particularly if that allows you both to give uh, equity positions to players and to communities, which cool. I think 
it is absolutely the case the city in which your franchise plays especially if public money was used in building the the arena but i but i'm also to change the subject to the knicks it is absolutely the case that a bad knicks franchise has costs every other uh, franchise in the league. It co- the yeah, league itself is paying a, a Dolan tax because by rights, the Knicks should be mm-hmm. almost like America's team. When the Knicks come to play in your... It's like the Yankees. Yeah, yeah come to play, you should get a, an attendance boost, you should get a ratings boost, you should get... They have the potential to be the signature franchise of the league. And when they when they're terrible, it drags everyone down. And that's, I mean, I, it should be the case that the that the ownership and the rest of the rest the rest of the teams should be able to go and say it's untenable to have an idiot running the most important franchise in the league. We've, we've um, been getting reactions to the series. It's kind of funny, but from Knicks fans being like, "Let why there be tapes, we, like, like please, <laughs> like like, we, like this is the blueprint. Like now, okay, now we just got to let there be tapes." Well, <laughs> you could say the same thing. I mean, David Stern's famous quote: "You know, what's my what's the ideal finals matchup right. every year? The Lakers versus the Lakers." Yeah. Okay, <laughs> like that's the famous David Stern. I mean, he's right. Yeah. I mean, like yeah. I live in LA. My life is better when the Lakers are better because it's just it's good for business. This guy sent me an email the other day. I don't know who it was. It was like an out-of-the-blue email in which he was presenting this theory of successful companies. And he said, the thing that's fascinating about successful companies is that you think that, you know, Microsoft or Google or whatever, are the, their success is a result of a thousand good decisions over the span of 20 years. He's like, no, no, no. Invariably successful organizations are those that made one or two hmm. amazingly good decisions early on. I've been writing it ever since. Totally. And I think about, Do if you, you think that? about the history of the NBA, it's like there are three sets of finals that essentially have made the NBA what it is today, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's Boston and LA yep. in, the, in, 80s. in the 80s, the Chicago runs in the 90s, mm-hmm. and it is the Golden State run of our present era. The three three good matchups essentially have created billions of dollars in value, yep. and within that, it's five players. Yep. And right? when dynasties happen, I spend all my time on ESPN debating whether dynasties yeah. are good for the league. Yes. Yes. The answer is yes. <laughs> well, this I forgot. Remember when I was making the list of all of the ways in which um, owners have it made in the shade? I forgot one thing, which is the draft. That the notion mm. that we reward the most incompetent among us yeah. every year is ridiculous. Yes. The draft the, the draft should either be you should just pull either you pull the order out of a hat or you get rid of it altogether. Because Absolutely. the the reason the one reason why the Sterlings and the Dolans last as long as they do is that the the draft rewards them. You screw up what happens? You get the top pick. Yeah. And you throw and then, a party. You throw the Sterlings a, used to have a lottery party every year. Yeah. Oh, you and and you can hear it, with, you know, there's some of yeah. that tape from the white parties where he talks about, oh, the number one choice in America. And, and there's no hint in the back of Donald Trump. <laughs> like, the reason you're you're touting this number one pick in America is because you were so bad. Because you're terrible. They uh, Even when they would get good players, like they would get Lamar Odom, right? Like they would get um, Baron, Davis. Baron Davis. Well, that was a free agent. Um, but even when the Clippers would get somebody good, it would just yeah. not work out somehow. Then we talk about this idea of the Clipper curse. And, uh, Wait, can I, before, yeah. you, before you go on, can I interrupt? And yeah. this reminds me of the greatest thing that ever happened to me, right? Okay, okay. I'm in a hotel in Chicago. Yeah. I'm in the lobby. I'm working at a, quietly at a table. Okay. 
out of the corner of my eye, oh. I see four very, very tall young men enter the lobby. And I think, huh, who are they? I look up, and one of them looks directly at me, and he goes, points at me, he goes, <laughs> Malcolm Gladwell, from across this huge oh, lobby. Oh, boy. Malcolm Gladwell, you the man. And I was like, you know what it was? Baron Davis. Wow. Yeah. The greatest. So there's like 50 people in the lobby. Yeah. Everyone looks up, and Baron Davis shouts out, you the man. One of my favorite Donald Sterling stories so that that one this one year uh, it was my first year covering the team actually and Barron's in the locker room and Donald used to heckle him these stories of Donald heckling Barron from the courts are just unbelievable um, and it's just like I mean Barron said it really affected him like it really like it, it depressed him he didn't want to go play because he's playing and the owner's like yelling at him from the heckling from the stands um, anyway he goes in the locker room and Donald probably had a few you know he'd been, and he br- comes in with a group of his friends like he used to do and he just starts going off because he would say to Barron he was just like I pay you all this money and you're not performing. You suck. And you uh, just trying to yell at Baron Davis, except it wasn't Baron. He was yelling at like Baron's locker was behind him. And the guy who was yelling out was this poor, like rookie at the time, Al Thornton, who doesn't really even look like Baron, but Donald didn't notice at the moment. He was just mad. And so the whole locker room was just like, what the hell was that? Like, I mean, and everyone kind of felt bad. Like, even though it, it, like it didn't hurt as bad because he wasn't even yelling at the right guy but this idea like Donald finally spent some money on a free agent he finally like opened up the checkbook and then Barron didn't perform and so he was like see this is why I don't spend money on free agents yeah because uh, it's not guaranteed winning the number of players number oh. of lo- there should be a uh, a metric which is total number of of player years lost to Donald yes. Stern oh my god yeah, yeah. Okay. we'll get like, on yeah. we'll talk to 538 about yeah. that and see yeah. that's a good that. one one of the things we think about a lot in the stories we tell is, you know, I find it very satisfying to tell a story about the past and and not connect the dots to the present and let the listener draw the connections and learn those lessons, especially in audio. I, You know, it's a very active medium. The listener does a lot of work. And I think that's very satisfying for the listener to be like, oh, I see what this is teaching me about right now. But, you know, in your podcast, I wonder what your approach is there, because there are times when you let a historical story ride and let the lessons be obvious or seep through. And there's other times where you draw a circle and say, look, see, this is telling us something about right now. So how do you make those decisions? Uh, I don't know whether it's conscious. Sometimes the story seems to require that um, just because it's a little bit of a leap. And then sometimes it's just too, you know, why bother? It's so obvious to, you know, just kind of um, uh, come out. and, And also a lot of it is about the, I mean, not to get nerdy, but it's about the quality of the tape. So if you have, I mean, you've just gone through something where you had this glorious gift, right? (laughs) If you have a glorious gift, you don't have to do, you don't have to spend a lot of time like, but if you don't, if you're working with very, very limited, where you have difficulty summoning the the manner, the voice, the character, the presence Mm -hmm. of the person you're, then you kind of have to work a little harder and say, well, there's a, you know, there's a reason I'm telling you this story, even though the guy is barely or the person barely appears because it matters today. I think that's really the dividing line for me. Um, I mean, I, you know, I will say we, we went back and forth a lot on the connecting the two Donalds, you know, and Donald Sterling and Donald Trump have a lot of parallels. And, you know, my f- initial stance was, Let's play it the way we've played it in the past, which is let people connect the dots. It's not that hard to connect the dots. Mm-hmm. And then we were handed this 
plot point gift of the fact that Donald Sterling was walking around in the late 80s actively touting himself as the West Coast Donald Trump. And so that and, and got a magazine cover, which I will show to you after we finish taping. Um, he, you know, he planted a magazine cover that says the man who would be Trump. And there's a picture of Donald Sterling in 1989. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, just editorially, then it was like permission to connect the dots because it was there in the story. I mean, there's so many parallels. Um, I think, you know, the biggest one, I mean, obviously they're both real estate guys. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, this, this, this life, it's like this, 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 you know, you stick Trump Tower on everything, with big gold letters. I mean, Donald Sterling renamed himself from Donald Tokowitz to Donald Sterling. So it's like Sterling everywhere. So Trump, Sterling, like it's right there in big gold letters. Yeah. Um, in the way that they develop their businesses. There is a difference though. Mm-hmm. And I think this is, there's, there's maybe two really big differences. One, Donald Sterling wanted the fame, he wanted the celebrity, he wanted the validation that comes with it, but then had no idea how to inhabit that. Like once he would get the attention, he's not a public figure. He doesn't know how to talk in a public setting, whereas obviously Trump is fantastic at that. Like he is a mm-hmm. great television character. He's a great speaker. He's a compelling personality. Donald Sterling had none of that. But on the other hand, the way they run their businesses is very different too. Donald Sterling buys and holds and never sells anything, but is a fantastic businessman. I mean, like. Mm-hmm. He his companies they've never gone bankrupt. They they right. Trump's been bankrupt how many times now? I mean three, like a, I think three. Yeah, yeah I mean yeah. This, the, like Sterling is a he he is really rich and he's really successful at what he does. I'm reminded of um, a friend of mine who's in real estate and who knew Trump quite well, mm-hmm. um, particularly people who work with Trump, and she's like nothing about him is surprising to people in the real estate world because she says. The real estate world is full of people like that. Now, she's not necessarily being derogatory. What she says is it's different from other businesses. It is a business where, first of all, character is disconnected from the underlying business. In other words, we don't, if I'm going to go into business with you, I actually, I'm I'm completely uninterested in whether you're a good or a bad person because the, the fundamentals of the deal are relatively transparent. And two, it is transactional and not relational. That is, you, Mm. you do a deal. And then you start over and you do another deal. And there's no continuity from deal to deal. It may be that you find an entirely new set of partners, an entirely new set of banks. So there's none of the pressure. In other businesses, mm-hmm. you, are mainta- you have to maintain yeah. a series of relationships over time. So you bring in somebody who is from that world where characters disconnected and where uh, it's, it's transactional, not relational, into a business where the opposite is what matters, running a franchise where you have players you deal with you're going to have trouble right real estate people her argument is that real estate people should not be allowed to be politicians but i think we can add to that real estate people should not be allowed to own own sports franchises all right that's a very good final (laughs) note to end on we could do this for forever but um we are going to wrap up uh malcolm gladwell thank you very much for doing this super fun yeah Yeah, ramona shelburne thanks to you and uh, i will tell everyone to go listen to both of your respective podcasts and read all of your work all right my name is jody evergan thanks for listening to 30 for 30 podcasts we'll see you soon 